Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open up to 1 Samuel chapter 21. That's our text for this evening. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out. And the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Okay, so we're we're back in 1 Samuel. We're at the point in the kingdom where Saul is is greatly declining and David is greatly ascending. David is now um, David has been anointed the the king. He has not yet uh, ascended to the kingship, but he's on the run, right? He is, in a sense, in exile uh, because Saul is after him. Saul is, uh, Saul is angry um, and is, is uh, trying to find David so that he can kill David. Uh, Jonathan has warned David. Remember when Jonathan, Jonathan and David covenant together and they have that covenanted bond, that friendship, and uh, Jonathan is back at the banquet, and David has gone away, and um, and they figure out this scheme of how Jonathan is going to tell him whether Saul's angry or not, and um, and it turns out that Saul is very angry, and uh, and so Jonathan communicates to David, and David is now wandering about the wilderness of of Israel, um, and so that's where we pick up. Um, verse 42 of chapter 20, remember, um, remember that. 
Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. Okay, so there's that departure, that breaking, that breaking there. And the first stop for David is a place called Nob. He goes to the city of Nob. Um, what do we know about the city of Nob? Well, this is the first mention of this city in Scripture. Uh, it's the first time we get it here. It's a priestly city. The priests are gathered there, so it would have been populated by priests. Apparently, the tabernacle is there because Ahimelech is, is working in the tabernacle. Where was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was in Shiloh, but remember several chapters back, Shiloh was destroyed. Um, that's when Eli was, was uh, Eli and Eli's sons were wreaking havoc, uh, or his sons were. And so the tabernacle is now in, in Nob. It's probably very near Jerusalem, uh, within, as some say it's like the Mount of Olives, some say it's within a few miles of Jerusalem. But uh, nonetheless, it's, uh, it's the tabernacle, which is portable. And um, what, what is lacking in the tabernacle at this point? The ark. Right, the ark. What did you say? Food. <laughs> Apparently, but not the, not the holy food. Um, the ark, right? The, the ark is still, still outside the tabernacle under the... Uh, um, and not, uh, it will be brought back, and David will be the one to restore the ark to the, the tabernacle. Okay, now, why, why do you think the... So, so David comes to Nob, he comes to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech comes trembling out to meet him. Why do you think Ahimelech is, is trembling? Why is he fearful? And, and he asks a question which, which may indicate the fear. You're by yourself. Why are you by yourself, David? What's going on here, do you think? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think Ahimelech is not unaware of what's going on in the kingdom. It was, it was pretty obvious. The women are singing, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands and there have been murder attempts, and David's been fleeing, and Jonathan and David have a relationship uh, of, of co- covenanted um, bond. And, and so things are starting to, you know, uh, become obvious in the kingdom. And so Himelech is aware of these things, and, he, and David comes by himself. And he's like, uh-oh. Um, why would David come alone? He's the, he's the anointed, he's sort of the, the king-elect and um, he should be surrounded by men. He should, uh, um, he should be surrounded by his counselors. And yet here he is coming alone. What's going on here? Um, what does he say to Ahimelech? David says to Ahimelech, well, I'm on a, a mission from the king. Right? The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. So it seems there are people with him. He does have young men with him, but they're off in a different place. So he hasn't come alone, but he's come to Ahimelech alone. Those men have stayed somewhere else. 
And, um, and then he asks for, for bread. And it seems like he wants to give provisions for the men that have come with him. He doesn't ask just for his own provision. He asks for five loaves. So he's going to take them back. But, but what about this thing he says to Ahimelech? Is it a lie? And we have to deal with deception and lies in the next few passages because there's a lot of it going on. Rahab's not the only one who lies in Scripture. Is this a lie that David gives? Has the king commissioned him on a task? Not that we know of. Clearly, um, he's, he's manufactured a pretext in order to approach Ahimelech. Why would he, why would he do this? What if he came to Ahimelech and said, look, I'm running from Saul, I need your help. What happens when Saul comes along? Yeah, Ahimelech is gone. Of course, Ahimelech is gone anyway. Ahimelech, I think if we read the the best we could possibly read into this, David is trying to give Ahimelech plausible deniability. Right? He's trying to get it so that he can say, look, Look, he came to me and he told me he was on a mission and that's why I gave him weapons and provisions, right? He, he needs to be able to tell. Uh, so David, in a sense, may be trying to protect Ahimelech by giving this pretext, by lying to him. Does that justify a lie? Well, it depends on who you read, right, Ed? Um. In the Reformed tradition, there's always been an understanding that there's something called the lie of necessity. The lie of necessity is when life and limb are at stake, deception can be used in order to protect the innocent. Okay, and, and that's, I mean, that's derived from Rahab. You know, she protects those, um, protects those men from the wrath of the, the king, right? And so... Um, there's that, um, and, then, and then there are other people who say, like Vern Poitras, who's a, a great theologian, says, no, you can't ever lie. You need to believe in the providence of God, and that you shouldn't lie, and the circumstances will work out according to the providence of God, but you must be righteous. Okay, so, so what do we do with that? Where do you fall? Where do you fall? Well, the, the word of the Lord doesn't, doesn't say anything in these passages condemning the actions of David or of Rahab. Okay. He doesn't with Rahab, that's true. Rahab just gets praised in the New Testament. There's like no, there's no negative um, commentary on her actions, right? But what about David? David, in this situation, if we jump ahead, David admits that he did wrong, right? So it's fairly easy. Um, Doeg is hanging out, right? And Doeg goes back to Saul, and then Saul comes and reports what's happened. So all the deception didn't work because there was Doeg, this, this infiltrator, was there at the tabernacle. And Doeg goes to Saul, Saul comes back, kills, the, kills Ahimelech and the priests. Right? And David says at the end of 22, David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. 
Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. So he says, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. So in this circumstance, if, if, if David had just said, Ahimelech, I need provision and I need, I need weapons so that I, because I'm fleeing from Saul, essentially the results probably would have been about the same. Maybe a little bit swifter. Right, if Saul would have heard and Saul would have come back, but Doeg's there. Um, but this question about lies of necessity or or half truths or using some sort of deception is something that we need to think about carefully. I mean, I made a blank statement in a sermon a couple weeks ago that sometimes it's acceptable to lie, and Ed came up to me and said, eh, "I don't think so." You know, and, and, and it got me thinking. And, and then I went to all the resources where, I, where it proved that, you know, lying's okay. And then I went to the other ones where, um, and found this article by Vern Poitras. You should read it, um, about lying. And he, he takes the opposite approach. And what he does, he brings up the example of the ten booms, right? And if you've read Hiding Place, that whole book is about this question. Corey Ten Boom's like, yeah, you can lie. And her sister is like, or is it her aunt? It's her sister. Her sister's like, no, you got to tell the truth. And there are situations where these both, they both play out and they both play out for the good. You know, even just to hide somebody is, is lying, right? That's deception. You're, you're intentionally trying to deceive. In the next section in this, this chapter, um, we have David feigning being insane, that's, that's a sort of lying, right? He, he uh, drools from his mouth. He's lying. He's not sick. He's not... He's not uh, so that's a form of lie. So all this we have to deal with it. But in, in the hiding place, um, Corey Ten Boom would use deception and feel that it was justified because there were lives at stake. And then her sister would... Uh, there's, there's an example where um, the SS or whatever it is comes into the house... And the sons, her, or her brothers, are hiding under, under the floor, under a table. And the SS comes in, and, she, and they question, where are your brothers? Um, and Corey sort of lies, well, one, one studies at the, at the university, and one, one's here, even though they're under the table. She's just giving them facts about them. And then the sister says, oh, they're under the table. And she just sort of says it with a smile on her face. Now, that could be considered deception. But she, her words are true. They're under the table. And she says it in such a way that the, the guards are like, well, whatever. And the whole room burst out in laughing when she said they're under the table. And so, I mean, that's, a, that's an example of her telling the truth and it working out very well. Right, they're they're not found. The the guards leave, and the brothers survive. Um, but, but there's, you know, so so we we continually come across this in scripture, and um, it's something that we we have to um, examine ourselves. We have to examine ourselves because some of us are just prone to deception. Some of us are just prone to lying, and so we'll lie when the stakes are really low, right? When it's We'll lie for five bucks, not, not necessarily for a life. And f- for you, then, deception is something that, you, you, you know, you've got to begin rooting out. And, 
and, uh, and then other people, um, other people will be so naively truthful that they'll be unwilling to be as wise as a serpent. Right? That they'll be so truthful that they'll stumble into situations where a little forethought would have saved a lot of pain. Um, and 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 I'm not I'm I'm not espousing the lie. I'm esp- I'm espousing in that wis- just wisdom, right? Not just um, naivete. Naivete, being naive, is condemned in Scripture, right? Being naive, um, and so uh, it's helpful to think about this. What? Um, why? Why would David go to the tabernacle for food and a weapon? Why? I mean, that's something I thought about. Why go to the tabernacle for food and a weapon? What? Okay. Yeah, I mean, there, there could be um, a sense that he's just going... Um, He's beginning to function as a king, and he knows that the priests are going to have have uh, provision for him, right? And so, but the weapon thing seems very strange to me, and yet it seems as if David knows that the sword of Goliath is is hiding out in the tabernacle. He asks, you know, do you have a weapon here? <laughs> and and ah, it's it's the sword that he used himself shortly before to hack off the head of Goliath, and it's a beautiful sword. It's a big sword, I assume. And um, and so, I, it seems that he has some knowledge of this. But the the um, the the food thing is interesting to me. Um, why why do you, why was Ahimelech willing to give consecrated bread under the condition of the sexual purity, the ritual cleanliness of these men? Why was he willing to give this bread? This is another good question, right? Because what, what do we know about the bread of the presence? Who was it to be eaten by? It was to be eaten only by the priests and only in a holy place, right? So special, special people in a special place were only to eat that bread. And only after it had come down off the, the table, right, the, the, the bread was changed every seven days and hot bread was put in its place, and then the priest could eat what came off the table in a holy place. And so here's Ahimelech um, willing to give that bread to David, who's one, not a priest, and two's not in a holy place, and it's going to the, the brethren who are with him. Why? Why? What's up? Well, well there's an answer. Right, where do we find the answer to this question? In the New Testament. Anybody remember where? Oh man, okay. Matthew twelve. Matthew twelve, I think it's Matthew twelve. Um, Jesus makes mention of this very circumstance. And what is this what are the circumstances surrounding this coming up? Well, the Pharisees are mad at Jesus and his apostles because they're going about on the Sabbath picking grain and eating it. Thus, a violation of what? 
violation of the Sabbath, right? You're not supposed to work, and they're theoretically harvesting grain. But what does it say? It says they were hungry. They're hungry, and it's the Sabbath day, and they harvest grain for themselves, and they eat of that grain. And then the Pharisees come along and say, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. And then Jesus brings up this this situation in the Old Testament. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but for the priests alone. So Jesus admits it was not lawful for them to eat that consecrated bread, but he's using it as a parallel example to what they're doing, Jesus and the the apostles are doing on that Sabbath by harvesting, by working, working. Um, it is work though, right? They weren't supposed to, to harvest and this is mini harvesting. And so they're breaking the, the Sabbath commandment just as David and Ahimelech are breaking the commandment that the bread only be eaten by the priests. But are they guilty? Are they guilty of a sin? Well, Jesus goes on and he says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? So the priests get to work, but they, they're breaking the Sabbath, right? They're, the Sabbath command is don't work. They're working, but it's not held against them, right? It's not held against them. They break the Sabbath and are innocent. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So he's, he's saying the apostles are innocent. You Pharisees have condemned the innocent. right? And in saying that, he's saying that David was innocent. He broke the law, but he was innocent. Okay. Um, so what's the... Is there an overarching principle here? Calvin seems to think there's an overarching principle here. Um, and what, what do you think that principle would be? Deeds of mercy, deeds of necessity. Um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, right? The Sabbath in Mark, it's, this is where Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? Once, once Sabbath-keeping becomes so onerous that, that you are uh, wrapped up in keeping commands and not in worshiping God, then you've, you've sort of you, you've turned the Sabbath on its head. And so, um, I mean, that last statement, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. If, if the Pharisees had had compassion, what would they have said? about the harvesting of grain. They would have just said, those men are hungry, they need to eat. Those men are hungry, they need to eat. And it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't have become about, um, about law-keeping. It would have become about compassion toward them. Um, so, so I think, you know, this is one of these... This is one of the wonderful times when the New Testament becomes the authoritative commentary on the Old Testament. We learn what's going on in sort of the the mind of David through um, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, 
I've got that Calvin quote somewhere. Uh, or maybe I don't. Um, yeah, here it is. The general meaning is that those persons judge amiss who turn to man's destruction, the Sabbath which God appointed for his benefit. Right? If, you, if the Sabbath becomes something that begins to destroy men, well, that, that's not what God created it for. It was created for rest. It was created for worship. It was created for uh, nutrition, spiritual nutrition. And, um, and uh, you turn it on its head if you, you don't do that, which God appointed for his benefit. The Pharisees saw the disciples of Christ employed in the holy work. They saw them worn out with the fatigue of the journey and partly with want of food, and yet are offended when they are hungry. They take a few grains of corn for their support uh, of their wearied bodies. Is not this a foolish attempt to overturn the purpose of God when they demand to the injury of man that observation of the Sabbath, which he intended to be advantageous? So, so Calvin's just saying, look, they're turning the Sabbath into something that hurts man rather than to something that's that God gave to be to the blessing of man. Um, there's a way in which we can be overly rigorous. Uh, all right, so another question. Um, these men were to be holy, right? There is that, there is that um, qualification. They were to be holy, sexually pure, and that means ritually pure. If they had been with a woman, they would have been ritually unclean, right, for 24 hours. And so um, they, they have not, and David assures them of this, and when it speaks of their vessels, it means their, their, their clothes, right? If you're unclean, whatever, you're, whatever you touch becomes unclean, right? And so it's speaking of, uh, in, in using that word vessel, it's, it's speaking of their clothing. Now, there's also this take, and I thought this was an interesting take. There's a sense in which we have to keep in mind that David is ascending to become king. And, and so all of these things that happen to him have, like, cosmic meaning. And, uh, and one of the cosmic meanings that I came across on this is that um, perhaps there's something going on with, with the bread, um, the commentator says, David's two questions were sim- uh, syntactically parallel and emphasized the hand. What is under your hand? What can you give into my hand? So it, it, the translation we have drops that, but, but he's, he's speaking of hands. Um, the emphasis on the hand continues in verse 4, and David later asked if Ahimelech had a spear or sword under hand, which he needed because he had no weapon in his hand. This emphasis on the hand provides a clue to the significance of this incident. According to the Hebrew phrase, when, um, when priests were ordained, they had their hands filled. During the ritual, there was a ritual filling of the hands when the flesh of a sacrificial animal was placed in the ordinance hands as a sign that he could henceforth offer sacrifices and also eat from the sacrificial meat. In 1 Samuel 21, the repetition of hands suggests that something like an ordination was happening, of, happening to David. Of course, David is, um, was not ordained as a priest. Um, but as we have seen, there was a priestly aspect to the kingship in Israel. And, and that leads me to something else. 
we see a lot of overlap of the different um, callings in this in First Samuel, don't we? Seems like Samuel, who's a prophet, functions like a priest, right? He sacrifices animals, he does that work. And now we see David sort of functioning as a priest or being semi-ordained to the priestship. And and so there's a lot of and and the ark's not in the tabernacle, right? There's a lot of things that there there's disorder. Things are not in order. And so um and yet you know, the, the tabernacle has moved. There's no ark. The prophet Samuel seems to act like a priest. He offers sacrifices. The king acts like a prophet, right? Remember when Samuel is prophesying? He's among the prophets and he's prophesying. So the kings are acting like prophets. David is sort of anointed as a priest. Um, you know, we could focus on all this disorder, right? We could get upset that, that the king is like, is, is acting like a priest and there should be a, a strict divide between those, right? We could get... We could focus on the disorder and make sure we know how we would do a better job if we were in the circumstances than they would. We would keep the roles distinct, right? We would have it set up and, and tight, and, and, um, and uh, uh, we, wouldn't, um, we wouldn't make a mess of it. And in the end, what that would mean is we would have rigid structure that, that didn't deal with reality. We'd have a rigid structure that lacked love perhaps, right? We'd be so focused on disorder and getting structure that we'd be just, we, we, would, we would throw out, we would be like the Pharisees, right? We would see hungry men and we'd just be thinking about the disorder. We wouldn't be thinking about the fact that, man, they're doing spiritual work and they're hungry and they're fatigued because they've been serving people night and day, right? So we can, so I, you know, I, I see this as um, just a reminder that we can be um, we can become precisionists and lack love. We can become precisionists, and and don't hear what I'm not saying. Precision in theology is important, right? But there is a way in which we can become precise to the extent that we begin to recast the God of scriptures in forms and orders that are not laid out in scripture. We go extra scriptural to bring order to the Godhead. Um, there's, a, there's a debate going on right now in Presbyterian circles and actually Baptist circles, the whole Reformed circle about the Trinity. About the Trinity, and it's, it's pitted John Frame against the world. Um, and, and there's, a, there's a new movement within Presbyterian called, they call themselves scholastics. They call themselves scholastics, and what they want to do is be very precise about the language they use of the Trinity. And then John Frame comes along and he says, I don't want to be precise, I want to be biblical in the way I speak of the Trinity. And the Bible's not always precise. Philosophy is always precise. But the Bible is not always precise, and there's a reason for that. Because God is a father, and he's a covenanted father. He's not a philosophical concept to be understood that way. He is a, he is a person to relate to. So you see how precisionism can, can take you into a philosophical realm and distance you from the Scripture. There's, a, there's an inspired ambiguity to Scripture that is good. It's inspired. It's right. There are hidden things, right? 
And so, um, precision and rigor can lead to spiritual death. death you know, that, that, that if we want to import philosophical categories to understand God, extra-biblical man-made categories to understand God rather than understanding him through the scripture alone, which teaches us that he's a covenantal God and a father and a son and a Holy Spirit, right, who, who loves and he is love. If we want to, um, we can overemphasize precision to spiritual death. We could also overemphasize love to spiritual death, right? If God is only love, right? We've seen how that has wreaked havoc in the church. Rigorists can begin to think of God as a concept, a reasonable concept, rather than as a father who is love. They approach him as an equation rather than a father who made wonderful promises, Right? The rigorist is bothered by the lack of clarity of role here in this passage. Right? A rigorist would come along to this and say, man, a priest can't be a king and a king can't be a priest. And da 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 um, The rigorist is bothered by the lack of clarity of role here in this passage. How dare a king take on the priestly role? The Pharisees had the same kind of rigor. In the presence of... Think of this, in in the presence of the Lord of the Sabbath, they tell that Lord the rules of the Sabbath, right? They tell tell that Lord, look, uh, your men eat on this, do what's not lawful on the Sabbath. It's the Lord of the Sabbath they're talking to, right? The Pharisees are rigorous. They are rigid Regular principle of worship guys who think that uh, that goes right down to musical style, right? And they end up telling God how he must work rather than allow God to define or not define how he works, right? Rigorous begin defining who God is and telling him how he must work. And we should never, ever get into a position like that. God is God. And He's the one who defines how and what and who He is. And we must accept that. And where do we get it? We get it from the Word of God. We don't get it from, from, um, we don't get it from, from music historians. We don't get it from philosophers. We don't get it from outside and anywhere. But, but the, if you want to read on this this debate that's going on, um, find John Frame. If you're interested, talk to me, and I'll get you John Frame's articles. And then on the other side is a man called Dolezal. I think he's connected with Westminster, and um, he's he's a rigorist, right? He wants God to be all the eyes and all the, all the eyes dotted and T's crossed when it comes to Trinitarian theology. And uh, in the end, what he does is, is reduce God to a concept. Um, think, think of that. Think of yourself now, now to bring this home. Are you attached to outward and slight matters so as to make holiness to consist in them entirely? Outward and slight matters, right? You look for conformity in certain things, like the Pharisees look for conformity in this or that. Like, like the rigorous would come to this passage and just be like, with with David deceiving and giving pretexts and and the bread being handed over and and some sort of ordination happening and all these things. 
do, do you, are you attached to outward and slight matters? Where does righteousness consist for you? Um, it's worth uh, thinking about that. Are you paying the tithe of mint and cumin and neglecting the weightier matters of the law? Right? As long as you've got your tithe, then you're doing good spiritually. But um, the weightier matters of the law, like honoring your father and your mother, like um, having no other gods, are, are minor matters. It's so terrible to be in a situation like that. Do you think famished men, do you think hungry, famished men should die on the Sabbath? rather than satisfying their hunger. I mean, rigorous would say, no, let them die. Let them die. They cannot break the law of God. Let them die. And yet, Jesus says that what they did was not a breaking of the law. They were innocent. It was a breaking of the law, but they were innocent. Because He desires compassion and not sacrifice. Um i got so many more notes here, and I'm just blowing through all of them. Um, the, the last thing I'll say, what about the sword? What about the sword? Um, I, I think it's interesting that, that David now has the sword of the Philistines, and he's going to become a destroyer of the Philistines. So the weapon of the Philistines becomes the weapon by which they are destroyed. And what a wonderful thing when God does that, right? He takes the weapons that have been built by the enemies that have come against the church and uses their own weapons against them. Um, I think this is the reason that David went to Nob. He knew it was there, and he was going to, he was going to uh, protect himself and defend Israel with the weapon that was, was manufactured and used to destroy them. It's a wonderful symbol, isn't it? It's a wonderful symbol of God's uh, turning things around. Um, God causes the sword of the Philistines to slay the Philistines. You know, it makes me think of uh, an analogy I was thinking of is when you have a forest fire, what do you stop a forest fire with? With fire, right? You burn, you burn a space up where, when it's approaching this way, you burn back. So that it doesn't have any fuel once the, the flames burn up. And so you're fighting fire with fire. You're taking what's your enemy and using it as your, um, your weapon. And so here, uh, perhaps it's a, it, it's a helpful analogy, perhaps not. Um, so here, here's David and he will go out and, um, and do um, damage with it. Anything else? Ahimelech, the last thing I'll say is Ahimelech was not a rigorist. Ahimelech wasn't a Pharisee. Ahimelech gave David that bread, even though he knew that that was a breaking of the commands. He supplied the king-elect with food and a weapon. And David, now we see that, that um, David is blessed. He has food, he has a weapon, he has... Um, he, Yes, he's in the wilderness. Yes, he's, he's having to fight. But he is blessed and Saul is now cursed. And we're going to see more and more in the coming chapters how the two diverge. How more blessed David becomes and how more cursed uh, Saul becomes to the point where Saul then kills himself.